what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. There's a small village in interior Alaska called Anaktuvik Pass. It sits inside the gates of the Arctic National Park, which is both the northernmost national park and the least visited park in the United States. Anaktuvik is an anglicized version of an Inupiaq word that means place of caribou droppings. Villagers in Anaktuvik Pass hunt caribou as their main source of meat and use caribou skins for clothing and shelter. Caribou, or reindeer, live in the regions around the Arctic, Alaska, the Yukon, the Northwest Territories, Siberia, and Northern Europe. Some subspecies make their homes on the tundra. Others prefer the boreal forest. Some groups of caribou stay in one place, others migrate with the seasons. Caribou populations cycle through periods of boom and bust. Every decade or so, the number of caribou will rise, reaching peak abundance. Then, the population will decline again. Every 40 or 50 years, caribou populations go through a complete collapse, with herds losing 80% of their members in a cycle. Caribou population cycles mimic the climate cycles found in the Arctic. In warmer years, insects wreak havoc on caribou and prevent them from eating their fill. New births decrease as cows are too stressed to maintain a pregnancy. Disease and predation take their toll. But then the cooler years arrive and the caribou population quickly recovers. Of course, the long-term effects of man-made climate change may permanently disrupt this cycle. According to Bathsheba Dumuth and her book, Floating Coast, caribou do not only migrate through space, their numbers are unfixed in time. There is no one historical moment when the herds are not either recovering or preparing to falter. The indigenous people who depend on caribou for sustenance and protection from the elements adapted to these population cycles. They changed their diets and moved to new locations during times of caribou scarcity. When the caribou populations surge again, they migrate back inland and resume the hunt. Indigenous people seek balance and live with these cycles rather than fighting against While scientists still don't know the complex cause and effect of caribou population cycles, they do know for sure that population cycling has been occurring for centuries. Along with Arctic climate cycling, it's a natural phenomenon. Surge and collapse, boom and bust. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores navigating the 21st century economy with our humanity intact. This episode is the final installment in our Context Clues series that explores the historical, sociological, and philosophical roots of the ideas we take for granted. The news today is full of profoundly troubling headlines, including talk about an impending recession. 
So today, we're tackling economic cycles, the causes of recession, how the online business space is a microcosm of boom and bust cycles, and how to think about a potential economic downturn as an independent worker or business owner. Now, nature is full of boom and bust cycles. One cycle on my mind as the heat of summer sets in is the bear grass flowering cycle. Bear grass is the official flower of Glacier National Park in Northwest Montana. Every seven years, this otherwise unassuming plant sends up a long, thick stalk. The top five or so inches of the stalk buds and then blossoms hundreds of tiny white flowers in the shape of a bell. You can find bear grass every year inside the park and on the mountainsides of the Rockies. But on a good year, a frothy sea of white rises to your hips as you hike along a single track trail. In her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Wall Kimmerer describes a similar cycle called mast fruiting. Pecan trees belong to the group of plants that don't fruit every year, but instead store up resources over a few years and then produce their fruit all at once. Pecan trees don't do this individually though. All of the pecan trees in an area will take up the task of fruiting together. Kimmerer writes, quote, if one tree fruits, they all fruit. There are no soloists. Cycles are part of life. Some cycles are quite short, like the mayfly that's born, reproduces, and dies all within 24 hours. Other cycles take millennia to complete, as in the glacial cycles that control the Earth's ice ages. Fighting a natural cycle takes vast amounts of energy. It's resource intensive. But living with, even using a natural cycle offers balance. Now our economy is unbalanced, not only in terms of wealth or equity, but in terms of our expectations for what it's supposed to do. Policymakers and bankers manage the economy for continual growth rather than balance. And understanding why and how that management process works is key to understanding recessions, as well as what it means for you as a business owner. So what is a recession? What is a recession? There's a group of people at the National Bureau of Economic Research. It's called the Business Cycle Dating Committee. And they're the ones who get to decide. And, and what do they look at? They look at, and this is a quote, a significant decline in economic activity, right, that is spread across the economy, so not just one or two sectors, not just cars or houses, but widespread, and that lasts for several months. Here's the catch with this definition. We will not know we're in a recession this time or any time until basically it's over, until we have started pulling out of it. That's Kai Rizdal of Marketplace and Make Me Smart. Political and economic institutions funnel an immense amount of resources into maintaining continual growth. In other words, avoiding recessions. Research, collaboration, historical analysis, they pour time and energy into keeping the line always going up. They've effectively set the expectation that constant growth is natural. And when growth slows down or even reverses, that's unnatural. We expect gross domestic product to tick up every year. We assume a baseline inflation rate that allows salaries to rise and assets to appreciate. 
We take policy action to ensure that the population keeps rising and new jobs are always being created. And yet, as hard as we fight it, the economy cycles. The average economic cycle in the United States is about five and a half years, according to Investopedia. But the length of the cycle and the length of its phases can vary dramatically. Each economic cycle is comprised of four phases. The expansion phase sees gross domestic product rising, household incomes increasing, and production ramping up. The peak of a cycle makes us feel confident in the economy. Maybe a little too confident. During the peak, growth maxes out and imbalances occur. The peak then leads to a correction or the contraction phase of the cycle, and this is where the economy can head into recession. Growth declines or reverses, and employment rates drop. Finally, the trough is the low point of the cycle and the start of a recovery leading into a fresh expansion phase. For a time, economists and policymakers assumed economic cycles were natural, like the population cycle of caribou or the flowering cycle of beargrass. But just because something happens frequently doesn't make it natural or inevitable. Economists and policymakers believed that they'd achieved some understanding of how and why cycles occurred, enough so that they could manage the economy with careful monetary policy. But especially since the 1970s on, when Nixon severed the connection between the dollar and gold, things have been weird. Since the 2008 recession, the usual indicators of economic cycling confounded economists by repeatedly providing conflicting data points. All signs pointed to a recession in 2017, and yet the economy continued to grow. Signs pointed to recession again in 2019, but the economy continued to grow. We know that 2020 brought an economic shock and financial disaster for many people and companies, but it was more of an anomaly than a full-blown recession. After the initial shock, corporate profits continued to soar and money poured in from the federal government. For some, 2020 was an economic crisis, but for others, it was payday. Now, most mainstream economists agree that the economy just doesn't make sense right now, and it hasn't for some time. All of the things we thought we knew about economic cycles and early indicators of contraction have gone out the window. So how did we get here? Where are we going economically speaking? And what does that mean for you as a small business owner or independent worker? First, another brief ecological digression. A few years ago, I started to see signs around town warning to stop the spread. No, these signs weren't publicizing ways to prevent infecting others with COVID-19. This was well before the start of the pandemic. The signs were urgent announcements to stop the spread of the spotted lanternfly. The spotted lanternfly is an invasive species in the U.S., South Korea, and Japan. It was first cataloged in the U.S. in Berks County, Pennsylvania in 2014. Now, Berks County is just to the northwest of where I live. And it took until about 2016 or 2017 for me to have heard much about it. And I think it was 2018 when I first started to see those signs. I saw a couple of lanternflies that year, but not many. 
Now, by 2019, they were everywhere. Today, lanternflies are all over the Northeast, Mid-Atlantic, and even stretching into the South and Midwest. Now, the lanternfly's preferred habitat is a tree, which is also an invasive species commonly known as the tree of heaven. It's taken over the sides of highways and proliferated through areas with less active maintenance, and it's at its most dense in the peak of the sticky summer heat. In fact, last week I told Sean that that tree looks humid to me. I really hate the tree of heaven. One of the most disappointing parts of coming back to Pennsylvania after a road trip to Montana or Maine is noticing the subtropically green tree go from non-existent to sparse to suffocating along the side of the interstate. Now, invasive species cause quite a bit of damage to an ecosystem, upsetting its balance. As they multiply, they strain the natural resources of the ecosystem, water, food sources, habitats. The most successful invasive species often push out native plants or animals by gobbling up all the food in an area first. While native species are used to vying for resources with the usual members of their ecosystem, they have difficulty adapting to invasive species because the invasive species exploits the ecosystem in new ways. An ecosystem can boom and bust as an invasive species takes hold over time. An ecosystem in balance can quickly be pushed off kilter when a new predator or aggressive plant moves in. That new species seems to boom while the native species go bust. Then, as the new species takes over, it can overextend itself, and the invasive animal or plant goes bust as a result. Eventually, another new species moves in because they find something to eat and start their own boom. Now, ecosystems do cycle naturally, like in the Arctic. However, an invasive species often causes a predictable but not natural cycle, one that can completely reshape the environmental contours of an area. The economic cycles we've experienced in the 20th and 21st centuries were not natural, but they were predictable. Now, pre-capitalist economies certainly cycled. Drought, famine, disease, and war could all disrupt an otherwise stable economy. But capitalism introduced new variables into the system. At first, market systems did a lot of good, and the Industrial Revolution did improve the standard of living for most people in Europe and North America. But as capitalism evolved and became more entrenched, more capitalists found ways to extract value from the system without regard for the effects. Neoliberal capitalism removed many of the checks and balances on private companies, capital, and markets from the 80s on through today. The invasive species have had a field day. I think what's always difficult to reckon with when we talk about capitalism is that market forces have created many of the things that make our lives better today. Technology, health science, accessibility of food and water, transportation, the profit motive has led to real innovation. But at the same time it's led to real innovation, 
it's led to real damage and gross inequality. The same innovations that have made my life easier have made a lot of other people's lives so much harder. Capitalism as a system teaches us to see these trade-offs as inevitable, as natural. The invasion of new economic predators is good for growth. In fact, historian Timothy Snyder calls this the politics of inevitability. As he told Ezra Klein back in March, What the politics of inevitability does is that it teaches you to narrate in such a way that the facts which seem to trouble the story of progress are disregarded. So in the politics of inevitability, if there's huge wealth inequality as a result of unbridled capitalism, we teach ourselves to say that that's kind of a necessary cost of this overall progress. We, we learn this dialectical way of thinking by which what seems to be bad is actually good because the politics of inevitability assures you that whatever the good things are, they're being brought about automatically by some invisible hand right? The market is like mom, you know, it's going to take care of you with that invisible hand. And you don't have to think about what the values might be, what you actually desire. You lose the habit, right? You never perform the mental gymnastics of stretching to figure out what a better world might actually be because you think you're on track to that better world, no matter what happens. Profit and growth are the prevailing values of capitalism. What's valuable is what creates profit or growth, or ideally profit and growth. Profit is expected to grow continually. So any action that makes it easier for profit to grow is action that the system sanctions. Companies spurn regulation that might make it harder to make a profit, you know, things like higher minimum wage, health insurance standards, and environmental policy but they love regulation that makes it easier to profit. Think patents, trademarks, and other forms of intellectual property protections. Companies might claim to have values like fairness, inclusiveness, respect, accountability, and trust, but those values are typically only operationalized in service of growth and profit. Now, as Snyder points out, the politics of inevitability have trained us to see the harm this can do as a necessary component of progress. The bad stuff means we're doing something good. The effects of this progress are natural and welcome. We learn not to question the system or its values. What better alternative could there be? As Professor Pangloss would say, it's all for the best in the best of all possible worlds. Axiom 7. Once one dismisses the rest of all possible worlds, one finds that this is the best of all possible worlds. The politics of inevitability is really what we're talking about when we talk about economic cycles as being natural. Capitalism is the inevitable result of all human progress to this point. So if the economy cycles in capitalism, then it must be a normal, even welcome, part of how things work. But humor me. What if instead of looking at economic cycles as an inevitable feature of the best of all possible worlds, we take a different perspective? What actually fuels the expansion phase of the economic cycle? And what's happening in the contraction phase as a result? First, we'll look at the potential answers from a macroeconomic angle, and 
Then I'm going to demonstrate the same phenomenon within the online business space. So during the expansion phase, capitalists figure out how to make money in new and novel ways. Financial innovation drives growth. Value is extracted from the economic ecosystem at increasing rates. Capitalists seize on resources and commodities to grow their wealth. And by the way, a capitalist is just someone who owns capital, resources, commodities, or financial assets, and uses that capital to generate profit. For example, a venture capitalist is someone who funds a business before it scales up so that they can profit from the future value of that business. So let's look at this financial innovation or invasion in action. In the 1920s, before the Great Depression, new forms of consumer credit, financial speculation, and trade protectionism fueled growth. Investors took advantage of cheap, cheap money to play the stock market, long before most people even knew what that meant. Loans, backed by loans, backed by loans, fueled growth and profit. Once the market became disastrously overleveraged, the stock market tanked and there was a run on banks. In the 1960s, increased military spending due to the Vietnam War led to precarious growth. Sure, it was the government that was spending the money, but it was the defense industry getting rich. In the 1970s, we get the Great Inflation, a combination of currency speculation, dramatic increases in oil prices, and short-sighted political maneuvering at the Fed. In the late 90s, investors went all in on internet companies. They poured billions of dollars into unproven startups that lacked any sort of revenue model. The NASDAQ, the stock exchange where most of those stocks were listed, grew 400% in just a few years' time. But then the bubble burst, and that led to a 76% decrease in the value of the NASDAQ stock exchange over two years and prompted the 2001 recession. And finally, the Great Recession in 2008 was the result of the subprime lending crisis, a speculation scheme I covered in episode 377. Investors were so enamored with their new financial products and money-making schemes that they failed to see how precarious their positions actually were. They sold out average and unwitting consumers, and as a result, millions of families lost their homes and their retirement savings in the collapse. Now, in the case of each of these recessions, the Fed took action to cool off the economy before things got too bad. The recessions happened anyway. When policymakers get in on the act, it's always to protect capital and get the economy back on a growth trajectory. They do this, ostensibly, to help families or workers, but there's rarely any direct relief. Monetary policy still assumes a trickle-down approach. Now, if we look at these recessions through the politics of inevitability, it all seems natural. Growth happens. Trying to control or regulate that growth just leads to a painful contraction. Milton Friedman might say the Fed should mind its business and let the market do its thing. Milton Friedman is not one of my favorite economists. 
Free market economists and politicians wave off legitimate questions by telling us to pay no attention to the men behind the curtain. But if we do dare to draw back the curtain, we might wonder how acting in favor of growth and profit will solve a crisis that an insatiable appetite for growth and profit created. It's only unreasonable to think growth is a higher priority than stability if we assume that the continual growth of profit is the best of all possible systems. But what if stability was the highest value in our economy? Or sustainability? How might the economy of the last 100 years look different? Okay, that's a look at economic cycling from a macroeconomic view. But as I've been working on this episode, it it really dawned on me just how much the online business space can be read in this same way. Now, I know you're probably tired of hearing me say that I've been in this space for a long time. But in that time, I have seen some things. Namely, I've seen boom and bust cycles happen every three years or so. When I started in 2009, it was near the peak of the affiliate marketing and blog advertising boom. So much so that the experience of using the internet was kind of starting to suffer. No Federal Reserve stepped in to try to correct the market, of course, but Google and Amazon did. The advertising market crashed and affiliate marketing was no longer an easy play early internet entrepreneurs went back to the drawing board. By 2012, launching was the new boom. At first, people were making money launching their own products. But in no time, people were launching products about launching. Once enough people learned how launching works, consumers became skeptical and it was harder to extract profit through launching. So the newly minted launch experts needed to pivot. By 2015, high-end courses were all the rage and making people loads of money. By 2017, people were asking whether high-end courses were over. By 2019, membership sites, communities, and masterminds were the ticket. And by mid-2021, those offerings seemed spent and cohort-based courses became the new way to make money. Now, someone recently asked me when the online market for courses was going to get back to normal. My answer was that it's not going to. That's not to say that someone can't make money with an online course today. But what I mean is that whatever fuels the next expansion phase of the online business space will be a different kind of product or tactic. People will experiment with new ways to exploit the market until someone lands on a quote-unquote no-fail strategy. The people who pick up on it early will make bank. The people who pick on it toward the peak will likely lose a lot of money in the crash. Now, I don't begrudge anyone the opportunity to make money, and I'm not going to suggest that the people surfing the wave of each boom and bust in the online space had some nefarious scheme in mind. I truly don't believe that's the case. However, just as companies unquestioningly make decisions based on profit and growth, Online business owners unquestioningly make decisions on profit and growth. If one way of making money begins to offer diminishing returns, then whatever way of making money seems to be working must be the next thing to do. We end up always looking for ways to extract more value from the system 
rather than constructing business structures based on stability or sustainability. We don't mean to be an invasive species online, but that's the role we find ourselves in over and over again. In the case of macroeconomic cycles and the online business cycle, the profit-at-all-costs game will continue until the playing field is saturated with unsophisticated players. These players compete for the dregs of the resources and commodities that are left over. The refs, policymakers, bankers, and financiers, try to keep the game going as long as they can, but at some point, even they can't keep up the ruse anymore. The game ends. The players left on the field have nothing. The players who left the game at the peak made serious money. The market correction or economic contraction lasts however long it takes for capital to figure out how to exploit resources and commodities in a new way, and then the cycle begins again. The only way out of the cycle is to adjust priorities. We need to start valuing stability and balance over continual growth and profit. While there are some leaders voicing this position, big systemic change in the economy is unlikely to happen soon. But the good news is that this is actually something that as small business owners and independent workers, we can enact on our own. Our businesses may still be impacted by the economic cycle and the profit motives of others, but we can prioritize stability and balance. We can avoid the small-scale boom and bust that happens online every time someone starts making big money with a new social media platform or offer strategy. We can stop looking for the latest silver bullet and start basing our business decisions on the needs of all the humans involved. We'd have to give up our addiction to FOMO, but we'd run businesses that were more sustainable and generative. And we also wouldn't have to live and work in fear of the next recession. Maybe we'd discover that there is still a natural cycle to economic development, but my guess is that a cycle that's not driven by exploitation for profit wouldn't leave so many people picking up the pieces every five to 10 years. So what is going on in the economy right now? Can we even know? Panic seems to have been bubbling up through the cracks in our economy throughout 2022. Inflation is way up. Rents are way up. GDP contracted in the first quarter. So is a recession inevitable? As I mentioned earlier, in 1971, Nixon unpegged the value of the US dollar from the price of gold. And since then, the value of the dollar has floated in currency markets. Before that decision, there was a fairly concrete amount of money available in our economy. And that meant that economic cycles were relatively more predictable. But after the dollar was unpegged, central bankers had more wiggle room. They could manipulate the amount of money available through interest rates. With interest rates low, lenders would be incentivized to lend more, and investors would be incentivized to take on more debt. Now, that effectively increases the amount of money in the economy. And when interest rates are low, we also tend to see lower unemployment rates. But that measure lags far behind GDP and asset prices. The Federal Reserve sets the interest rate that banks use to calculate the interest they will charge to borrowers. And that interest rate is actually the rate that banks charge other banks when offering overnight loans. But that interest rate also affects 
the prime rate, which is the interest rate banks charge to their most creditworthy customers. Now, the Federal Reserve has a dual mandate. That means it's tasked with keeping prices stable and working toward full employment. But the Fed only has one tool to do that, interest rates. So the Fed manages interest rates in order to keep the economy from either overheating and then breaking down or stagnating and prolonging a downturn. A few weeks ago, the Fed announced the biggest interest rate hike in 30 years, with more increases expected. The goal is to add some friction to the housing market and stock market. That, in theory, slows overall demand, which, in theory, slows the rapid rise on prices on everyday items. Now, of course, the economy is an incredibly complex beast. Trying to manage it with a single tool is like trying to recreate Rodin's The Thinker with a sledgehammer. One tool is hardly sufficient for maintaining even a facade of equilibrium. Economist Reina Faruhar explains on The Ezra Klein Show. The Fed can't do what policymakers can do. It can't change the story on Main Street. It can't build a new factory. It can't reskill all of us to do better jobs that are higher up the food chain. It, it can't change that story. So, so what you do is you almost get this sugar high where, you know, there's these headline numbers. Stock prices are up. Housing is up. You know, things are booming. But nothing at the ground level is really changing. We are currently in the longest economic expansion phase since records started being kept in the 19th century. Or that expansion has just ended. It depends on who you talk to. The Fed pushed interest rates down to nearly zero after the housing crisis. And they left them there for years as the average worker or property owner saw no substantive change in their situation. Employment rates improved, but wages remained stubbornly low and rents quickly outpaced any growth of income. Now, as wages have finally started to improve for some and labor is seeing a resurgence of energy, the Fed has raised rates. Policymakers wring their hands about a looming recession. After all, aren't we due? Elon Musk has a super bad feeling. And Jamie Dimon says a hurricane is coming. They announce to their employees and shareholders that things don't look good, economically speaking. Similarly, Americans respond to poll after poll expressing pessimism about the economy over the next 6 to 12 months. Pundits mention this shared melancholy as further evidence that the next recession will occur sooner rather than later. But when Musk or Diamond express their concern, and when you or I express concern, we're not actually talking about the same things. Powerful CEOs of publicly traded companies express concern as a way of tempering investor expectations. Stockholders expect earnings to grow continually, making stock ever more valuable. When a company doesn't produce as much profit as planned, some investors will jump ship, causing the price of the stock to fall. There's less demand and surplus supply, so the price must be lower. Interest rates and labor costs are often the cause of lower than predicted profit. And it's that prediction, that expectation, that really matters. A company can still produce an incredible annual profit, but suffer when the bell rings at the end of the trading day. 
If the company is expected to generate, say, $30 million of profit in a quarter, but they only generate $25 million, investors might panic and sell. A small sell-off can cause a bigger sell-off, allowing the price of the stock and therefore the market valuation of the company to fall. So when Musk and Diamond tell us to be cautious, they're letting us know their bottom line might not be that much bigger than last year's. Don't get your hopes up, they say to investors and market watchers. Now, when people like you or I express concern about the economy, we're largely thinking of our own households or the communities that we live in. We might be nervous about our jobs, about the price of gas, or about mounting grocery bills. And so here we are at the peak of an economic expansion cycle that's lasted longer than any other since these things started to be tracked after having come through an economic shock felt unequally by both workers and employers. And understandably, people are getting nervous. Now, you might imagine that how people feel about the economy is inconsequential. But how people feel is actually exactly what moves the economy, since our economy is based on consumption. So if people get nervous, they're less likely to buy new stuff. They'll start to pay down debt or stockpile savings. Then companies miss their earnings predictions because people aren't buying. That leads to investors selling stock, which leads to lower stock prices, which leads to potential panic on Wall Street. That panic trickles down to consumers who start to buy even less, and the cycle continues. This just further exacerbates the volatility inherent in the system. But here's the thing. The same people who respond to polls saying that they're very concerned about the economy also respond that they're doing just fine, financially speaking. Derek Thompson at The Atlantic called it the everything is terrible, but I'm fine attitude. It goes without saying that there are plenty of people who are not fine. Financially, they're not fine. Their health isn't fine. Their living situation isn't fine. Their debt isn't fine. But on the whole, consumer spending remains strong. Houses in my town are still selling within a day or two of going on the market. Every day, I get a new mortgage refinancing offer, although that's something I should have done this time last year. Yes, the inflation rate is very high. And yes, the stock market has taken a few hits. And yes, even GDP contracted last quarter. But every other macroeconomic factor seems to be indicating that a recession is not imminent. Yes, the housing market is starting to slow down a bit. Yes, household debt is starting to creep up as prices rise. And yes, many jobs still don't pay enough, offer any kind of stability, or provide benefits. But the prevailing microeconomic attitude is actually pretty positive. When I asked my Instagram followers what questions they'd like to see covered in this episode, one of the big ones was, how can I prepare my business for a recession? And I do have plenty of concrete ideas about that, and I'm going to get to them very, very shortly. But the bottom line is, don't panic. Your lack of panic, of course, isn't going to turn the whole economy around. But not panicking does make it easier for you to keep your eye on sustainability and stability. It makes it easier to ignore potential silver bullet solutions that are going to lead you astray. 
And your lack of panic will impact your customers and colleagues, the ripple effects of which can do quite a bit to stabilize a small corner of the market. A recession, whether it's officially declared or whether we just start to feel uneasy about the economy, is not a reason to dramatically change what you're currently doing. And yet, there are some strategies you might consider depending on your current situation and needs. First, an economic contraction could be an opportunity for proactive contraction in your business or workload. Focusing on what you or your business does best and reconfiguring business operations around that value can allow you to emerge from the contraction with a stronger, more sustainable business and a less exhausting, less overwhelming workload. Now, proactive contraction really means deciding to prioritize sustainability over growth. You may decide to generate less revenue or allow revenue to level off instead of pushing for year-over-year growth. If your business generated, say, $150,000 in revenue last year while you launched new offers and experimented with new ideas, you might decide that your revenue target for 2023 is also $150,000, but with the goal of making everything you do more streamlined and effective. What would it take for your business to do the same amount of revenue as last year, but with only 80% of the sales or with only working 30 hours per week? How would you need to plan differently? And how would your offers or your clientele need to shift? I learned another way to think of this through the writer Meg Conley. Meg wrote about the difference between predictive dormancy and consequential dormancy. Consequential dormancy, we're all too familiar with. It's when an organism, you know, like you or me, slows or stops functioning because of unfavorable conditions. Burnout is consequential dormancy. So is needing a few days on the couch after a marathon. Predictive dormancy, on the other hand, is when an organism anticipates the cold of winter or the heat of summer or a change in the availability of nutrients and decides to go dormant before the shit hits the fan. As Meg points out, our culture doesn't leave much room for predictive dormancy. We push until we just can't push anymore. We grow until we've used up all our resources. But we don't have to. We can say, this is good for now. And now I'm going to rest. The next tip comes courtesy of an interview I did over four years ago now with the founder of the Fruit Guys, Chris Middlestad. Chris told me that he realized that he needed to focus on a variable cost strategy in order to weather the 2008 recession. So as we then expanded out of that and as we then got into the recession, you know, later, All of our expansion has been really focused on variable cost expansion, not fixed cost expansion. And that's really allowed us to think about growth and about how we expand in times of crisis or how we look for opportunities in times of crisis in a really creative way so that we make sure that we don't actually try to grow our way out of something where we're fooling ourselves and actually putting ourselves more in debt or more at risk. When you focus on variable costs, you focus on spending money only when you're making money. Variable costs are those that come from delivering what's been purchased. A fixed cost, on the other hand, is money that's spent regardless of how many sales you're making. So for instance, at Yellow House Media, one of our variable costs is labor. 
our part-timers work more when we're serving more clients. And if a new client represents four hours of part-timer labor per week, then we know to account for that time in our production costs. On the other hand, our subscriptions to Dubsado, Descript, or Canva have fixed costs. We pay that every month, whether we have two clients or 20. Using variable costs strategically can help you innovate on your business model. By asking yourself how you could tie more of your business expenses to individual sales or clients, you may see opportunities to shift what you're offering or how you're offering it. Often, so that it's a win-win for the business and for your clients, while also protecting you from a sudden shock to sales. Similarly, check your pricing. Inflation is real. If you haven't updated your pricing in the last year or two, it's time to do the math. What expenses have changed for you? How has your cost of living changed? Do you need to give your employees a raise or talk to contractors about whether they're charging you enough? I believe pricing and salary changes need to be done with a community mindset rather than an individualistic one. But I also believe that sitting on prices that have remained unchanged for years just isn't sustainable in the long run. The way you price your products and pay your people should be in keeping with the values of stability and sustainability for your business. Next, think about the business you're in. If your business is selling the secret to the last boom cycle, it's time to rethink things. It might seem like X, Y, or Z will always be a great strategy, like getting to this strategy was inevitable. But I got to tell you, it's going to go bust, and it will stop being profitable before the next big thing comes along. Now, I'm not going to suggest that any product or service lasts forever. I'm sure Kodak believed that there would always be a booming consumer market for color film. Some offers aren't flashy or guaranteed to bring you insta-success, but they do have a history of stability and likely a long future of it too. If you're exiting the boom and bust cycle of online business, be prepared for smaller profit margins. But those profit margins can fund a long, happy career with less fear, less urgency, and less compromise. Finally, abandon the hunt for a silver bullet. There is no one weird trick that will protect your business from the impact of a recession. There is no opportunity to jump on in the trough of an economic cycle that isn't the exploitation strategy that will lead to the collapse of the next cycle. In her book, You Belong, Sevene Selassie suggests that we can either be reactive or we can be creative. Same letters, different order. Reacting in urgency or fear to economic indicators or the loss of a client is only going to lead to hasty business decisions, over-delivering, and exhaustion. Taking a breath, thinking creatively, and acting always with intention. This is never wasted time or effort. The economic cycle, remember, is predictable, but not natural. Yet, we are cyclical beings. It is natural for us to embrace the ebbs and flows of life. We can learn a lot from the caribou, the pecan tree, and the meadows full of bear grass. However you choose to weather economic ups and downs, remember that fighting your own cycle is hard, resource-intensive work. 
and the cycle, well, it'll always win. So rest, relax, and navigate your own way. This is the final episode in my Context Clues series. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure to nerd out with you from afar. The feedback that I've received on the podcast this year has been so fortifying. If you haven't yet, I'd love for you to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Or share the show with a friend. This episode is a good one to share if you know someone who's nervous about the economic headlines. Or share episode 385 with someone who just can't fathom running their business without being always on. To make it easy, use the URL pod.link slash what works so they can pull up the show in their favorite app with just one click. That's pod.link slash what works. I'm going to take some time off this summer, a little predictive dormancy, and I'll be back in September with regular episodes. In the meantime, I'll share more about my book and whatever other random thoughts bubble up. Have a question about an episode of What Works? Is there something you've noticed online, in the news, or in your business that you're curious about? I'd love to hear from you. Go to zipmessage.com slash whatworks and leave me a message. I'll try to respond in a future episode. Again, that's zipmessage.com slash whatworks. Till then, keep doing what works. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was edited by me, Tara McMullen, and Marty Seafelt. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen. What Works is recorded and produced on the ancestral homelands of the Susquehannock people. The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Katunaha Nation. Ah!